0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for
1: 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Hey listeners, this episode is about an atrocity that happened in India. Some of the descriptions might be disturbing. Imagine you live in India back in the 1960s. Word gets out that there's gonna be a kind of festival. There are people making announcements.
2: Using such things as like a blowhorn or like a megaphone to shout out information in heavily populated areas.
0: It depends on where you were, but you might find... Tents, sometimes even large vans, for example. And people singing or dancing or performing skits. They also had an elephant, and the elephant had these banners
3: on both its sides which said, my name is Lal Tikon, which means Red Triangle. Red triangles are a symbol for family planning services. So my name is Red Triangle, and I bring happiness to children and
0: no more. These carnival-like camps were organized by the Indian Health Ministry, and they were designed to promote a very specific form of family planning, permanent sterilization. So why? Why was the Indian Health Ministry throwing sterilization carnivals? Part of the answer lies with one man, a man who worked for the Ford Foundation, and who thought sterilization would help India and the world. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect, a show about how we try to do good. I'm Dylan Matthews. This season, we're bringing you stories about big philanthropists and the way that their money has changed the world. Last time, we looked at an American foundation that reshaped American democracy. But today, we're looking at an American foundation that reshaped Indian democracy, the Ford Foundation. This is a story about two Indian prime ministers, one very enterprising Ford Foundation staffer, and most importantly, millions and millions of Indian citizens. It's also a story about the terrible influence that a foundation can have overseas, even when it's trying its best to improve the world. You heard from Savina Balasubramanian. She's a sociologist, and she'll come back at points. But our main guide through the story is Gyan Prakash.
3: Yes, so I'm a historian, and I
0: teach at Princeton in the history department. He also just wrote a book about India's biggest experiment with population control. And in that book, Gyan spends a lot of time with one man, Douglas Ensminger.
3: Douglas Ensminger was uh, a
0: rural sociologist. He was kind of a plain guy in his 40s, glasses, short cropped hair. In 1951, Ford sent him to India to head up their office there.
3: He thought that he would be going for a few years, not that he would stay for
0: 19 years. You know, he was the right man for the job. Here's a little more on what that job was. By the 1950s, American foundations had been working internationally for decades, fighting diseases, fighting famine. But some foundation officials were worried they were saving too many lives. The population numbers were going up too fast. India, for example, had 300 million people and was still growing. So some officials were alarmed because of racism. They worried the world was becoming too brown. But also, this was the Cold War. There were fears that a big population would mean fewer resources to go around. Less to go around would mean economic unrest. And economic unrest would mean communism. So when Douglas Ensminger gets to India... Population control is one of the main things that he wants to promote. But Ensminger wasn't going to waltz up to India's Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, and say, You've got to do population control right now.
3: He immediately understood that since Ford was interested in promoting population control, that had to be synced with what the Indian government itself wanted.
0: So the first thing Ensminger did was get close to the Prime Minister. He made his case to Nehru and to Nehru's health minister, saying that population control would fight poverty. The health minister told him he could bring in some consultants to pitch her family planning ideas. So the consultants whipped up a proposal. — And sure enough,
3: according to their proposal, the government of India, health ministry, establishes a kind of a semi-autonomous body called Central Family Planning Board.
0: At first, it was a broad program with education and options like condoms and birth control. But when those didn't seem to be making enough of a dent in population sizes, officials changed course. Increasingly, the program was vasectomy and sterilization. Early on, the government tried to get people to come to centralized clinics where they could be sterilized. But when that wasn't working, They decided to go out to the people. That's where the mass sterilization camps come in.
2: The mass sterilization camp was really sort of a catch-all word for a number of different approaches to promote and conduct sterilization operations amongst hundreds and sometimes thousands of residents of a given area.
0: So a lot of these camps involved skits and songs that told a story about two families— One family chooses sterilization, one family doesn't. And the family that chooses sterilization is shown as much happier and economically much better off.
2: This was a very, very prominent storyline.
0: These week-long events were pretty makeshift, especially in the rural areas where they operated out of tents and vans. So the events often focused on men. It's easier and less invasive to do a vasectomy on a man than to permanently sterilize a woman. And again, this was an Indian project. But Douglas Ensminger, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and other international partners had a deep, deep influence. For example, the consultants we mentioned.
3: They're advising the health minister on using these mobile vans, sending out
0: field hospitals. And the consultants encouraged the Indian government to start providing incentives start giving people a little money or a clock or clarified butter in exchange for sterilization
3: they thought that you know people were not educated enough to understand the value of a small family and just educating them would take a very long time so the policies had to move towards inducing them through incentives and punishing them through disincentives. So the Ford Foundation's role was just promoting and giving these ideas to the officials, and the officials were only too happy to implement them.
0: The Ford Foundation consultants also encouraged the Indian Health Ministry to start setting quotas in the different states, a target number of sterilizations that each state should get to. In a year,
3: it went up from like 1.3 million to 3.1 million.
0: I want to pause for a second because these are staggering numbers. While it's hard to know exactly how many people were sterilized during the stretch between the 1950s and the mid-1970s, one estimate put the total close to 14 million. But in a country of 300 million, that wasn't going to stop population growth. Enzminger writes in
3: 1969 a letter to the health minister saying that the numbers are not good enough and, you know, the Ministry has to make more concerted efforts. And then there is another report that I saw in the Ford archives, which around the same time, you know, speculates on compulsory sterilization. And says, wouldn't it be nice if the government would undertake a policy of compulsory sterilization because the voluntary sterilization is not working.
0: The people writing that report kind of got their wish. Douglas Ensminger left India in 1970. But the sterilization infrastructure that Ensminger and the Ford Foundation deliberately helped fund and imagine and put in place, that infrastructure stayed behind.
3: All they had to do was to ratchet it up by a few notches.
0: By the 1970s, India had a new prime minister, Indira Gandhi. She had a popular anti-poverty platform, but she also had a lot of political enemies. Those enemies called her election into question. In 1975, a court invalidated her victory and barred her from political office for six years. But her son came up with an interesting solution.
3: He kept saying, you know, forget all these constitutional proprieties and you should declare a
0: national emergency. She followed his advice, On June 25th, 1975, a national emergency was declared. During the emergency, Indira Gandhi threw thousands of her political opponents in jail. And then, she had free reign to do what she wanted. And she wanted to fight poverty. She saw two big ways to do it. Demolishing slums and ratcheting up the sterilization program that the government had already put in place. People said...
3: Indira Gandhi's slogan of removing poverty transmogrified into a program of removing the poor. So remove the poor from their slums, demolish them, and then apply the knife on the poor's bodies.
2: We see an intense scaling up of the scope and extent of mass sterilization camps.
0: In the 1960s, the government had started rounding up leprosy and tuberculosis patients and sterilizing them. But that was stepped up during the emergency. In addition,
3: these mobile vans and police would go and round up beggars at railway stations and bring them to these field hospitals and sterilize them.
2: Individual police officers as well as squadrons of police officers oftentimes being tasked with corralling people and forcing them into the back of a van, for example, to be taken to a mass sterilization camp.
3: And then a series of regulations that were passed by the state governments included things like school teachers would not get their promotion or would be transferred unless they were sterilized. Then railway passengers who were caught traveling without tickets, would be caught up and sterilized. And the state of Bihar, you know, the, the poorest state in, in India, took the price for cruelty. They passed a law saying that families with more than three children would not get rations in their food shops. So they could go hungry and starve and die if they didn't get sterilizations.
2: For many reasons, many of these camps were not adequately staffed or were staffed by insufficiently trained personnel. They would oftentimes use the same instruments to operate on different people without sterilizing those instruments.
0: In one year, 8 million people were sterilized, you know. This comes from an estimate made in 1979. Some put the number of men sterilized a bit closer to 6.2 million. In any case, millions and millions of people underwent permanent sterilization operations in a single year. Eventually though, the emergency ended, about 21 months after it began. Indira Gandhi called for elections in 1977.
3: The sterilization campaign emerges as really the chief campaign of the opposition.
0: Indira Gandhi loses.
2: And so population control and mass sterilization camps become something that the new central government explicitly disavows.
3: The family planning program and sterilization become the defining emblems of the emergency's tyranny.
0: Today, there are still family planning efforts in India. And those efforts include sterilization but on a different scale. The emergency is seen, rightfully, as an atrocity.
3: And in fact, in Delhi, you know, the name for the emergency, anthropologists found, they would
0: call it nasbandi ka time. Not the time of emergency. The time of vasectomy. After the break, how the stance of Ford and other foundations has dramatically changed in the decades since the emergency and what we can learn from this history. Welcome back to Future Perfect, In the first half of the show, we focused on population control in one country, India. We looked at how one foundation, Ford, worked with the Indian government to create mass sterilization camps. But there were other foundations working with Ford in India in the 50s and 60s and 70s. John D. Rockefeller III, for instance. John D. Rockefeller III was actually one of the first people who said, we need to work on population control. The biggest players in population would all meet every year at Rockefeller's estate in Bellagio, Italy, talking through ways to bring down the total number of humans on the planet.
1: So you have to imagine, you know, America is far and away the world's leading power. Wealthy Americans, you know, are setting the agenda worldwide.
0: Matthew Connolly wrote an entire book about the international project to control population sizes. He tackles deeply racist interventions, like the one in India— and also the many, many projects to control women's bodies and reproductive rights. Matthew says that around the 1970s, people were starting to see that all these family planning projects weren't really doing much to reduce fertility rates. They felt this responsibility for the future of the world. And at these fancy Bellagio meetings, there was talk of more radical measures. Measures focused on incentivizing permanent sterilization, like in India. There was even talk about helping people determine the sex of their fetuses so they could choose to abort girls. But around the same time...
2: We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden.
0: The civil rights movement was in full swing.
2: From now till 72,
4: it's
3: gonna be such a wonderful year for kicking ass and taking names.
0: And the feminist movement was surging.
3: A status
4: symbol with a ring. Tell me what that's gonna bring. A legal right to bear
0: so Matthew says that ever so slowly, this culture shift was seeping into the foundations.
1: The entire cause of promoting family planning was something that was beginning to be seen, you know, as a, as a Western plot, something being imposed on poor countries. By the early 1970s, Rockefeller himself felt that there was something wrong. And in fact, he felt that he needed to find someone who had an outside perspective, who could come in and tell him what it was that all of them were missing. And so he hired Joan Dunlop.
4: I was working at the fund for the city of New York, I think. And uh, I received a, a mysterious phone call.
0: Joan Dunlop gave a long oral history of her experiences before she died in 2012. The phone call she's remembering here was an invitation to have lunch with someone from the Rockefeller Foundation.
4: And I thought to myself, all right, well, fine, okay.
0: That lunch kicked off a very long job interview process. It took five months and many, many conversations. Later, Joan Dunlop learned why the wait was so long. The reason makes it very clear that the feminist movement had not really changed the culture at the Rockefeller Foundation by the 1970s.
4: In those days, my hair was dyed blonde. And JDR didn't, it was worried about that, thought that it was too flashy.
0: <laughs> JDR is John D. Rockefeller III, in the end, he hired her despite her hair, but...
4: after I was hired, he said to me one day as I was sitting in his office, and I collected on paintings, and he said the frame is really important. And, you know, you have a very pretty face, but the frame of your hair is not right for your face. It's just, when you think about this, I mean, not sexual harassment exactly, but, you know, it, it was an issue that, would in this day and age, Nobody would have ever dared to say, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Dunlop changed her hair, and Rockefeller gave her a task.
4: He said, take a year and go around and go to meetings and listen to people and um, tell me what you think is wrong.
0: So she went to meetings.
4: And it was very hard not to feel repulsed because women were being treated as objects and, and a means to an end. They saying, you know, there's this... Rising birth rate and the way to attack it is technology uh, through the women as a vehicle. And women's lives and why women had children or what the rationale for it or what they felt or what their concerns never came into it at all, ever. And I felt the racism in this field. Um, I just could, it was palpable. And also, I thought that, that it was also totally innocent in a curious way. People did not understand what they were saying on what their what their values implied.
0: — Joan Dunlop sits in on these meetings. She starts meeting with women at other foundations. They're seeing and hearing the same problems she is.
4: — And then I went back to Mr. Rockefeller and I said, there's a problem, this is the problem. The fear is shot through with unintended sexism and racism. And I don't even think I put this down on paper because I was too afraid of it, I thought it was too controversial.
0: Rockefeller was going to be speaking at a big international population conference. So Dunlop and others, they start working on the language for Rockefeller's speech. A speech that would basically say, population work needs to change dramatically.
4: What was it like when Mr. Rockefeller delivered the speech? What was it like being in the the hall? The place was jammed.
0: They were in a lecture hall with a couple of balconies. There were lots and lots of police for security,
4: um, and it was hot, and we were all highly nervous.
0: Except, apparently, J.D.R.
4: No, he had a very, um, very calm and sort of, not detached demeanor, but um, close to it. Do you think he knew he was about to throw a bomb?
0: I think he must have. John D. Rockefeller III, one of the first big pushers of population control anywhere, got up in front of this hall full of people who really thought that population control would save the planet. And he said, basically, we've been doing this all wrong. For many years, a sense of urgency caused me to concentrate on the family planning approach. No audio recording exists from the event. But the text of the speech was published in a population studies journal. Yet the evidence has been mounting, particularly in the past decades, to indicate that family planning alone is not adequate. What we need is effective and humane action. And this can come only by assessing our experience, deepening our understanding, and ensuring that the means we choose are fully consistent with the goal of a better life for all.
4: And when you read it now, it reads like pablum. It was just totally, you know, it, was, it's, it seems very, very tame.
0: But it was not pablum then, not bland, accepted wisdom. Some people, Joan says, usually people from developing countries, came up to her afterwards and were excited. They were happy to be moving, or trying to move, away from racist ideas about population targets and women as vehicles. But from the population establishment...
4: Cold silence, I think it's fair
0: to say. I'm not sure that they even clapped. Matthew Connolly says this felt like a betrayal. These population establishment people, they were worried that if they spent money on improving maternal and public health, it would just be wasted. And population sizes would just keep growing. Remember, they wanted to go more radically down the path they'd already been going down. They wanted more places to try big compulsory sterilization programs. And Rockefeller was saying, I don't think that makes sense.
1: And it really had a huge impact because until then, Rockefeller really seemed to represent this very strong consensus. Once that consensus was broken,
0: not just with this speech, but with the founding of new organizations and with new research, the field of population programming started to move toward a very, very different consensus one that looks a lot more like what foundations do today. They focus a lot more on reproductive rights and women's empowerment.
1: Trying to expand the agenda to take on other public health issues, including sexually transmitted disease, but also issues like sex education, also access to abortion, all these things that have been set aside or forgotten in the period in which population controllers were only focused on one thing, reducing population growth.
0: There's also efforts to help women stay in school longer and increase the overall health and well-being of children and adults. But I want to be very clear. Things are not perfect or resolved. John D. Rockefeller and Joan Dunlop were two white people in positions of power helping to create family planning policies, albeit more empowering ones, for people with less power living in other countries. And to this day, Matthew Connolly says we should evaluate population programming efforts very carefully. Yes, there's this more positive twist on them, but they're still very focused on helping people have fewer children.
1: And so if you ask organizations in the field, you know, do you accept that reproductive rights means empowering people to have the families that they want, they will say yes, absolutely. But then if you ask them, well, what is your organization doing in the field of infertility, say?
0: There are several African countries, for example, where the infertility rate is really high.
1: So couples not able to have children who would desperately like to have children. And these organizations, the great majority of them, are really doing little, if anything, for infertility.
0: In other words, helping people gain reproductive rights can't just mean helping them to not have children. It should also mean helping them have children if they want them. I also think we should be careful of looking at someone like Rockefeller as this hero who swooped in to turn things around in population programming. John D. Rockefeller III was working to fix a problem he helped create in the first place. His foundation and the Ford Foundation went into other countries, worked with the governments there, and created population programs with dramatic and sometimes horrifying results. One big theme of this whole season is how do we wrestle with the power that individuals like Rockefeller and foundations like Ford have when intervening overseas?
1: Yeah, so that question of what do we do about problems that are transnational in nature, you know, that that cross boundaries, and are global in scope. Like, how do we cope with those kinds of problems that the international system, such as it is, isn't really designed to deal with? That is the big problem of not just now the 20th century, but our century, too.
0: Sure, we're no longer worried that the Indian people are all going to turn into communists, but we are very worried about other real global problems.
1: Things like climate change, right, or pandemic disease and nuclear proliferation. These are problems
0: that we have to solve in a global way and that foundations understandably
1: also want to work on. And yet we don't really have the institutional capacity to address them in a way that ensures democratic accountability.
0: This isn't an easy problem to solve. The normal way we organize our politics is through the government, preferably a democratic government. And there's just nothing like that that can cover the whole world and tackle big challenges like climate change and war. That can make it easy for foundations to step in and say, look, no one else is fixing this, but we can. Sometimes we'll want that. I personally want foundations to do more to fight climate change, to prevent a big pandemic from killing millions of people. But one thing the emergency should teach us is that when you're making grants from afar, it's easy for people to start looking like numbers, for mothers and fathers to turn into targets and quotas, for reducing poverty to turn into getting rid of poor people. That distance between the Ford Foundation and the Indian people and between Indira Gandhi and her own citizens. It enabled unimaginable crimes. One thing we can learn from this history is that going forward, we should try to be less distant and a little closer to the actual people whose lives are changing. Future Perfect is produced and co-reported by Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. We're mixed by Jared Paul. Our fact-checking was done by Laura Bullard. Our music is by APM and Chris Zabriskie. Noam Hassenfeld is the voice of John D. Rockefeller. Thanks to the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College for the audio of Joan Dunlop, it's taken from their Population and Reproductive Health Oral History Project. Thanks to Darren Walker and others at the Ford Foundation for useful conversations about the Foundation's history. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out fox.com slash future perfect.